today is the great white throne judgment. So what finishes today in the book of Revelation that we'll be covering is the judgment aspect. That's what we'll be finishing next week. Uh, I am going to be in um, Portugal for, the, uh, for next weekend. So Ryan is going to present next week the vision that the Scriptures have of the new heaven and the new earth and the eternal kingdom um, ruled by Jesus Christ. And so he'll be bringing that next week. And then I'll finish up the series with a message just on how to, how to have an apocalyptic vision for today as a church in, in our world, uh, not knowing when all of these things are indeed going to happen. Uh, so, but today is the great white throne judgment, kind of the end of the story in terms of God's dealings with evil. And so let me pray. And we will get started again on a, a, a complex and difficult passage. I hope to see or anticipate uh, some good Q&A at the end. Lord Jesus Christ, you are the creator of all things in heaven and on earth. You are the sustainer of all things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. All things have their source of being in you. And as our Creator, you are our Lord. You are authority over us. And we recognize, God, that throughout the generations of humanity, we have rebelled and, and we have run away from you. We have left life. We have left the Creator uh, for the created things. And we have become idolaters. And so, God, we do not even begin to grasp the full weight, we confess, the full weight of what it means to have broken from you. We know what it feels like, God, when our, maybe our children uh, reject us, close friends reject us, or other family reject us. But God, we have no idea of what you have experienced when the very beings that you have created have rejected and run away for other things that only bring death. So God, it is really, we confess, almost unfathomable and uncomprehendable for us uh, to understand the weight of judgment that comes because of our idolatry. We can read about it. And we can see the vivid imagery and revelation. So God, our prayer is that through your Holy Spirit, we would um, be filled with the weight of what it means to rebel against you. So that we can begin to comprehend um, why your judgment is so severe. I pray, God, that you would uh, help me to be clear and accurate in my words this morning so that the truth, which cleanses and gives freedom, is what permeates our minds and our hearts as a church. In your son's name we pray, amen. So we are looking at the big theme of judgment today. And it's the great white throne judgment of God is the passage in Revelation that we'll be looking at. And you'll understand why it's called the great white throne judgment when we get there. But... Our culture, uh, more than any other culture that has ever existed, and it's not just 
North American culture. It's not just city culture. It is a, it is a global culture. It's particularly acute in, in the West, those countries that have thrown off the old orders, as it is said. We have a significant discomfort with the idea of judgment. And I'm going to rely heavily on, on the work of, of Charles Taylor, who is a contemporary philosopher um, and has written significantly on this notion of a secular uh, modern world and what it means. Um, and I'm drawing heavily on his book called The Ethic of, Ethics of Authenticity. And uh, I just kind of want to work with this idea because he works with not specifically this idea of judgment, but the idea that one not ought to challenge another's values. And that is, that is really, um, that, that statement captures, and this is from Alan Bloom in his book, The Closing of the American Mind, which is several decades old. But this movement has really been, started in the Enlightenment, the late 1700s, and has been moving forward. And we're just trying, these scholars are just trying to capture the essence of our, of our contemporary mind. And it's captured in this, this phrase, one ought not challenge another's values. Don't tell me that what I think or do is wrong. And don't force your opinion of your values and what you think is right on me. Charles Taylor describes it like this. Everyone has a right to develop their own form of life, grounded on their own sense of what is really important or of value. People are called upon to be true to themselves to seek their own self-fulfillment. And he calls this authenticity. There is a value inside of us, the contemporary mind, that in our, in our quest for authenticity, we pursue this, this um, uh, a life of integrity to what our inner feelings and selves are telling us. Now, you can kind of extrapolate from this and say, well, that's just kind of like selfishness. People have kind of lived for their own desires for centuries. Here's the unique thing about where we're at now. Whereas maybe several centuries ago, or maybe even last century, or in more, more traditional frameworks, there would be um, kind of judgment cast upon those who would reject family or faith or tradition or business to pursue what they're feeling and what their desires are telling them to do. There would be some judgment against that. The difference now is that our society, our culture, holds this idea of self-fulfillment as a moral value, as a moral value. Charles Taylor says this, the point is that today, many people feel called to do this, that they ought to do this, feel that their lives would be somehow wasted or unfulfilled if they didn't do it. So whereas maybe before, in early generations with a different mindset, when you felt the urge to leave your family, leave your work, pursue your own desires, or not be concerned about family, or not be concerned about society, and just kind of do what you wanted to do, what you felt like you were being called to do to fulfill this inner sense, 
it would have been called selfish. Today it's now held, held up as a moral right, a moral value, something to be pursued. And that if you weren't, and that if you weren't uh, living a life that was integrous or consistent with your inner feelings, you'd be living a lie. You'd be inauthentic. I've had, my, my, I've had friends and neighbors use this, these exact, I mean, they're not reading Charles Taylor. But my, my neighbor tells me, he says, you know, I, I, I want to be authentic. I want to live out what the, the sense is telling me. That's the new thing, is that this, there is a moral association to it. This is what it means to do right. This is what it means to do good. This is what it means to live a life that is real and honest and true, this inner authenticity. He argues that this new ethic emerged from a combination, and these are just, I'm just going to kind of give some broad ideas here, a combination of enlightenment individualism. Now, let me just kind of explain that a little bit. Um, so the, the enlightenment was primarily known as a time, so you think 1500s, 1600s, 1700s, where um, they're throwing off the authorities of God and state in pursuit of reason and science and rationalism, okay? Just, that's a big overview. Um, so it's, a, it's a, a combination of that. This, we're throwing off these external authorities that are governed our lives for millennia, and also, a with this is a, what a, kind of a consequence of that was a romanticism that said, listen, um, we need to throw off God, we need to throw off the state, but science and rationality and reason aren't going to get us everywhere, all right? So um, there's a rejection of that. So it's, it's we want to throw off the old orders of, of God and state um, but we can't turn to science and rationality for everything. And there's this notion that human beings have a sense, a moral sense within them. We have to look into ourselves, okay? No longer, people aren't telling us what to do. Science and reason aren't gonna tell us everything. There's a sense now within ourselves that I can determine what is right and good and true. Now, they hadn't thrown God off entirely yet, it was kind of the religious authorities and structures that were being thrown off, but there was a sense that God was still a, a present reality that would inform this moral sense, but it wasn't somebody telling me what God was saying. It was me having a sense of what God was telling me. Not pure external orders, not pure reasoning. The self emerges as this uh, vital reality that I can use to direct my life. I mean, it sounds so strange for us now that people like had a realization that, you mean I can think for myself? Because that's all we do now. But imagine a time where that was not how you governed your life. You did what your authorities told you. You did what your parents did, who did what their parents did. You did what the church told you and the state. You, and you lived for the whole, the corporate unity of, of whatever society or culture you're in. You didn't, you didn't live for yourself. You didn't think for yourself. And this is what emerges. And so eventually, morality becomes a voice from within. 
Not something that's coming in from external sources telling you what to do. It's something that's coming up from the inside. So eventually, authenticity, to be true to yourself. Because now, we've thrown off God altogether. And the state is now something that secures our individual rights, you see. It exists for my own, so that I can fulfill what I want in my own desires. It's not here for the, the good of the whole, the collective sense of us as a people. It's here to secure our individual rights. Now, it's not altogether bad. It's not altogether bad. This idea of authenticity as a, as a moral view does some very good things for us. First of all, it frees us from tyrannical and abusive authorities. And it's, these movements, these philosophical movements were largely coming out of a failed authoritarian, totalitarian religious and political entities. I mean, generally where we move as a culture um, is a reaction to where we've come from. That's true in the church, that's true in society, that's true in our politics. So I think it's good that we, that as a culture, we stopped just kind of taking everything that, that was told us as absolute truth and started thinking for ourselves. God gives us his Holy Spirit within us to direct us. That is a biblical truth, okay? That's coming from within, and we'll talk a little bit more on that later. I also think that it empowers us with courage in the face of abuse, we don't have to just take what comes upon us from the outside, regardless of whether they're our authority or not. And I think it affirms the ideals of personal value, personal callings, personal gifts, and per personal contributions that we can make. All right, thing, again, things slide. And we were so far concerned about the corporate experience that individuals kind of got minimized. Now we are so uh, enveloped by the individual that our, that our common society is suffering. Taylor believes that there are kind of, we're gonna look at four main problems with this. And the first three, loss of meaning. Okay, if, if loss of meaning. Um, if, if truth is what comes from inside of you, then you are your own form, former developer, creator of your meaning. But if you talk to people, they'll talk about themselves and their identities in terms of how they relate to other people and other things. We cannot develop a sense of meaning out of our own individual selves. We are always thinking of ourselves in relationship to other people. The relationships that we have, the friends that we have, the things that we do, the work that we do. We, we cannot completely define meaning within ourselves. But when we try to do it, we really come to a place where we lessen our sense of meaning and purpose in this world. A loss of passion. Taylor says this, he says, the dark side of individualism is a centering on the self, which both flattens and narrows our lives, makes them poorer in meaning and less concerned with others or society. And then he quotes Nietzsche. They have no aspiration left in life but to a pitiable comfort. I, I love this. They have no aspiration left in life, but to a pitiable comfort. 
Because all, see, all we're pursuing is, is our own sense of satisfaction and pleasure and well-being within ourselves. And so if we get there, which we can get there pretty quick, especially when you're in an affluent society, you're kind of just there. And you just have to keep acquiring more things, getting new pleasures to fill this lack of meaning, lack of purpose, lack of connectedness to the whole. And he says the greatest fraught problem is really eventually a, lo- a loss of freedom, a loss of freedom. And really, I would love to t- do like a 10-message series on, on, on how all of this kind of works and plays out. But he says a society in which people end up as the kind of individuals who are enclosed in their own hearts is one where few will want to participate actively in self-government. This opens up the danger of a new, specifically modern form of despotism, which Tocqueville calls a soft despotism. And it's basically a a politics and a government that is um, just kind of running where there really is no individual control over it. It just kind of runs. And if you think about where things are headed in terms of self-fulfillment, we will appoint a state and we will vote in people that tell us that they will fulfill the desires of our hearts, which if, our, if they are increasingly self-focused for self-determination and for me living out my life of authenticity, as long as the state is making my life so that I can pursue greed, we're going to fall to that. We're going to fall to that with the, if, if, if kind of the economy is the only thing that we're concerned about, and that's how we vote people in. It's the economy, stupid. Then we are going to have, we're going to have a world uh, governed by greed, a world governed by greed. And it's in this that you can see the slide to Babylon. People are giving their lives to greed, which is what um, unbridled self-pursuit is. It's greed. The Bible also calls this idolatry in Colossians chapter 3. Greed, which is idolatry. Paul always, if he uses the word greed, he will associate it with idolatry. And it's the unbridled pursuit of things and experiences um, to bring myself pleasure, to bring myself fulfillment without, without consideration of what I need and what others need around me. And if people are giving themselves to greed, they will eventually become enslaved to a state that promises to fulfill their greed. This is the slide to Babylon. I mean, remember when we went through Babylon? What is the image? The image is that you have a government who has been using um, pleasure and economic security to gather the nations of the world to follow them as a government. And once we as the nations of the world are following the government, the government is going to destroy, is going to destroy the, is the source of economic security, Babylon, because it is ultimately a competitor to that government. Because that government, which is under the influence of, of Satan, the serpent, the ancient serpent, the devil, okay, the number of terms that the scriptures use to describe that force of evil, that being of evil, it is a competitor. Money will be a competitor, but it will be used by the state 
to draw us into worship of the devil. Not that we're worshiping the devil, like who's going to actively, oh, there are a few people that actively and intentionally worship the devil. There's a great, uh, watch this documentary on heavy metal that came out about 10 years ago. It's about an hour and a half, two hours long, just kind of the historical roots and the tracing of heavy metal. And I like heavy metal. I used to like heavy metal music. And, and you ultimately get to the point where there's these people in Scandinavia that are actively worshiping the devil, all right? That's not what the scriptures are talking about here. We're talking about people that are deceived to believe that they are pursuing an authentic, self-fulfilling life in their pursuit of pleasure that's Babylon, but it's the enemy's use of that greed that pulls us away from God and away from Jesus Christ. So, how does this relate to judgment? Well, you go back to this original idea. We ought not to tell, or let me, let me, let's go to the slide so I don't mess it up. We ought not to challenge another's values. We ought not to challenge another's values. Who are you to tell me what is right? Who are you to tell me what is wrong? Some book that was written 2,000 years ago? The Bible? What is that to say to me what I should do? So here today we come to the final passage of judgment in the book of Revelation. And we see that God is authority and that God is judge. And God does take a position of judging others, of telling us what our values should be, and of judging those who do not align their values to his. And we can say, well, who are you, God? Or we can say, who are you, Bible? And we can wish, we can wish that we'll never have to face judgment. We can wish that. But wishing something doesn't make it so. And so the Bible is going to present God as authority. And I'm not going to try to get into like the historical viability of the Bible today. I'm here to present what the Bible teaches. But our reactions are going to be who is God to make those kinds of judgments? And before we get to Revelation, we, I want to jump into Jeremiah. I'm in Jeremiah right now in my reading through the Bible. And if you want to get really depressed, even worse than after watching Manchester by the Sea, read Jeremiah. Anybody seen Manchester by the Sea? Anna and I watched that on Friday night. It's terribly depressing. And it doesn't end good. It just kind of just floats off into nothingness. But Jeremiah is, is, is um, depressing and sad and angering because of, it, I think it, I, I just, I read through Isaiah, and Isaiah is not good either in terms of a positive view of the world, except that Jesus does return. I haven't seen anything positive yet in Jeremiah. Because... And I want to hit Jeremiah because we have a light view of sin. We have a light view of sin. Our world has a light view of sin. 
And unless you get into the criminal justice world, all right, where judgment and penalty is just part of the system, where there are some injustices because some, and again, another something we could bunny trail off into for a long time, there is injustice in the criminal justice system. But unless you're in that world, your experience um, of how our culture influences us and of your own desires and of your own selfishness, and I'm speaking, I'm throwing myself, our own, our own desires, our own selfishness, our own, our own will to be self-serving. We just develop a light view of sin. Jeremiah 19, 4 through 9, and, and, and Jeremiah is just explaining the judgment that God is going to bring down upon them as a nation because of some things, and it's going to expose those here. Because the people have forsaken me and have profaned this place by making offerings in it to other gods, whom they never, whom they, excuse me, whom neither they nor their fathers nor the kings of Judah have known. They are worshiping gods that they don't even know, that aren't even alive. They're wood, they are stone, they are metal. Things that have no life, things that do not speak, things that do not walk, things that do not hear, while rejecting the living, breathing God. And because they have filled this place with the blood of innocence, Israel for generations upon generations upon generations followed in the footsteps of the societies that they drove out. Societies known for their butchery and their killing of innocent people in pursuit of power, in pursuit of land, and in pursuit of money. And have built the high places of Baal to burn their sons in fire as burnt offerings to Baal, which I did not command or decree, nor did it come to my mind. Israel followed in the steps of the societies before it, where they were offering child sacrifices, giving birth to children and throwing them in fires. Why? To ward off the evil spirits of demonic entities, to create protection, and to acquire blessing from demonic entities for their crops, for their well-being, for their health, economic security. Therefore, behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when this place shall no more be called Topheth, or the valley of the son of Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter. And in this place I will make void the plans of Judah and Jerusalem and will cause their people to fall by the sword before their enemies and by the hand of those who seek their life. Israel was called to be a different people, to be a, a just, righteous people. The kings were called to look out for the poor, the oppressed, and the widows and to do justice. Proverbs 31, 1 through 10. A mom is is seeing her son who is to become king and he's wasting his life on women and wine. And the mom says, you are going to be a king. You need to look out for the poor and the oppressed and the widows. Stop spending your life on women and wine. That's Proverbs 31, one through 10. And then he describes the rest, classic passage. Here's what a good wife is because you definitely are gonna need some help. 
I will make this city a horror, a thing to be hissed at. Everyone who passes by it will be horrified and will hiss because of all its wounds. And I will, get this, things are going to become so desperate in the nation of Israel. I will make them eat the flesh of their sons and their daughters, and everyone shall eat the flesh of his neighbor in the siege and in the distress with which their enemies and those who seek their life afflict them. It's not God like God was telling them, hey, you need to start eating your neighbors and your children. No, that's not what God was telling them. What he's saying is the, the situation will become so distressful in Jerusalem because of the siege that the nation of Babylon is going to hold against it. They will become so hungry that they will eat themselves. They will become cannibals. They will eat their own children. If you look at the stories in Kings and Chronicles, this stuff indeed happened. Now, that's hard. That is judgment upon the nation of Israel. But it is because they were killing innocent people for gain. They were murdering their children. Generation. Now, this, you guys, this isn't like a one-time incident. God watched Israel do this for hundreds of years. God has watched nations before Israel do this for hundreds of years. Everybody has a trouble when they read the Old Testament and they say, why would God have Israel commit genocide against those nations? It's a hard question. It's because those nations were eating and butchering their children and sacrificing them to false gods for hundreds of years. And after hundreds of years, God just got kind of fed up with it and says, you know what? As a culture, you don't seem to be improving. You keep killing your kids. I think it's time to put an end to you as a culture. Culture is not just this amoral thing. There are evil cultures. We are all one people. We are all one people. You don't have some of those visions and pictures as clear in Revelation as you do in Jeremiah. That's why I wanted to hit it. Remember the story from 2000? I didn't know it was this long ago. A mom parks her car in the parking lot outside of a sandwich shop. She leaves her car running. Her six-year-old is in a car seat in the back seat. She goes in to get a sandwich. Somebody comes and hijack, carjacks the car. She sees what's happening, runs out, tries to unbuckle her son from the car seat, doesn't do it before the guy takes off, but she's far enough along so the kid is hanging out the side of the car door while the guy drives off. The chase lasts for like 20 or 30 minutes, the kid's hanging out the side, being dragged on the ground by the seat belt up to 80 miles an hour. They finally stopped the car, two guys sat on the man who said, I, I didn't do that, when he saw how he had killed this six-year-old boy. And they had to fight off people from beating the man alive right there because of what he had done to that six-year-old kid. That, I mean, what would you do if you saw that happening? You would want judgment. 
he's serving life in prison, but you would want judgment. So God has been watching for thousands of years us destroy ourselves. And he eventually will say enough is enough. And he doesn't say enough is enough because he, he also has this side of him that says, you know, once, once, <laughs> once I initiate this, it's done. And the time, for oppor- the time and opportunity for people to repent of their sin and to come to know me will be over. And so God is constantly weighing his, his long-suffering patience and his mercy, which is greater than his judgment, but they are, he is, they are constantly in tension in the mind and in the heart of God. So now we come to Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 10. I'm just going to read it and kind of, we're not going to spend very much time on this. I don't even know what time it is. Okay. Revelation 20, 1 through 10. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he sees, so this is after the battle of Armageddon, which we covered a couple weeks ago. When, when the, the devil and the Antichrist and the false prophet, which are the representatives of this, of this government and political entity that is opposed to God and has, has captured the entire world in greed and economic security. He sees the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the, into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Okay, so real quick. I'm not going to get into a big message on the millennial kingdom here. Is it a thousand years? I don't know. It seems that the text is saying that after the battle of Armageddon, there will be a time where Christ will rule on earth prior to the new heaven and the new earth, 
where Christ will rule on earth with those who have believed in him. The saints that were beheaded during the time of the tribulation where the Antichrist was ruling and he was persecuting Christians um, and those who have those who did not bow their knee to the Antichrist and to the system of Babylon, which started and has been going on for millennia, okay? The entity of Antichrist, the entity of Babylon, they have always been in existence, okay? Those aren't just individual beings. They are the spirit of an age. They are the spirit of a culture, a pursuit of greed and prosperity and economic security um, that leads to the oppression of people. That's what those are. So those who came out of that, those who have believed in Jesus Christ, will reign with Jesus Christ during this time. Text says a thousand years. There's a lot of imagery throughout Scripture around a thousand years. So it may be a thousand years. It may not be a thousand years. We don't know. It just seems to be a time. Here's the thing. The text is so full of images, and some of the images don't seem to be consistent with other images. It's just really hard to form concrete opinions on a lot of these things, and I don't think we're really supposed to. Christ will return for some season to reign and to rule, and during that time, Satan is kind of, he's, well, he's buried in a pit for this, this duration. He's not able to influence the nations, but he's released for a little while, and evidently over this thousand-year period or whatever the period is where Christ is ruling, um, nations continue to scatter and grow around the earth, and Satan goes and deceives a huge majority of them. There's kind of one big final battle, and in an instant, Christ destroys all of the armies of Satan, throws him and the Antichrist and the false prophet into the lake of fire which is what we covered last Sunday, <laughs> okay? If you have more questions about Lake of Fire, we can do that during the Q&A time here. But I just want to kind of get through that narrative. And then here is the end of all things in terms of judgment. I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. So imagine existing in all, there is no earth that you're standing on. There is no sky that you're seeing. There's just this, this state, okay? And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. The books represent the books represent God's memory. God's memory. Every person who has ever lived, God knows. God remembers. I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. So you have the books filled with the deeds of every human that has ever lived, and then you have the book, the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. So this is when the Scriptures say, God has the authority and the power and the right to tell us 
what our values should be, to tell us what right actions are, what wrong actions are. Then death and Hades were thrown in the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown in the lake of fire. So the book of life is a, is a register. Again, is there a literal book? No. God has it all in his mind. Jesus has it all in his mind. So all of us have done horrible things. Horrible things. All of us have sinned. All of us have sinned in our pursuit of a life defined by what we think life should be. But once we come to the point where we realize that, you know, this life is not really what I anticipated it to be, that, that money and sex and pleasure and selfishness and power and status, really, they aren't really fulfilling. In fact, sometimes they're destroying me. If we get to the point and recognize that a turn to God is the creator rather than the worship of created things, when we come to that point and say, God, you are life, and in you I want to have life. I recognize you as my authority. I recognize you as my creator. I recognize you as the source of life. I recognize that you have only wanted my good for every moment of my existence. And I have turned from you, and I have worshipped the things that you have created rather than you. And in the worshipping of created things, I have destroyed my life, and I have hurt people. You make somebody your God, that means you want things from them that only God can fulfill, and you will end up hating them. You'll end up hating them. The things that you make as God will destroy you unless it's God. And so once we come to the point of recognizing that God is life and the source of life, and we acknowledge that, that the death we deserved because of our sin was taken on the shoulders of Jesus Christ, that Jesus took the death that we earned. When we come to that point saying, I recognize that Christ died for me, that Christ took the forsakenness, God forsook Jesus, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus and the Father, their relationship was broken for a time until Jesus rose from the dead and reunited with the Father. And so that reuniting is what Christ promises us. It's what he promises us. If we acknowledge that he has taken that death, and if we acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord of my life and has every right to call my life to his purposes and to live for the good of others and for his glory and not for myself. When I recognize that, my name goes down in the book of life. I'm no longer judged for what I've done. Jesus took that penalty. I'm given a life that Jesus has secured for me. And then my name is in the book of life. I will not be thrown into the lake of fire, whatever that means. And I will enter into the eternal, eternal kingdom that Ryan is going to preach on next week. Let me pray. Lord God, uh, serious hard words. 
And like I said last week from Spurgeon, hard words, hard words create soft hearts. God, these are hard, and we know you are hard. You are hard, Lord God. You are hard, for we are a rebellious people, and you have to be hard with us. So we pray that um, you would help us, God, to stay strong against the threat of Babylon in our own hearts. Help us, God, to resist selfishness and, and financial security as the purpose of life. Help us to see that you are life and to pursue the kingdom of God and that you have promised. Help us to believe, God, that you have promised to give us all things if we pursue the kingdom of God. In your son's name, amen.